0: The reading this morning is from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17, and in the Pew Bible, it's on page, it's on page 1114, 1114, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. <coughs> then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: morning. Well, let's keep that passage open, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would stir up our hearts this morning. We come to a mission Sunday with uh, different thoughts and ideas, and Lord, our longing is that you would take our hearts, our desires, uh, and everything about us, and help us to submit to what it is you say to us. So we pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was privileged uh, last November to go to Budapest. My sister lives there, and I took my eldest son, and we went to visit her and some other mission partners and spent a day walking the streets. And it's a wonderful city. Maybe you've been there. This is what Lonely Planet says about Budapest. It has something for everyone, from dramatic history, certainly does, and flamboyant architecture, to healing thermal waters and a nightlife that's unrivaled in Eastern Europe. I don't know if there are other cities you might have been to and you could write something similar, but um, here's a couple more from another website describing a European city break. So Venice, the city you will fall in love with. Maybe you have Florence, love and culture everywhere. And then Athens, Europe's oldest open-air museum. But there's more to cities than meets the eye, isn't there? There's more to London than meets the eye. You guys live here. You see what's going on on the inside. Listen to this description by a Crosslinks mission partner working in uh, southern Europe. Europe ends here and ends here quite badly. It's a city where religion and superstition overlap, where a, a test tube containing the blood of the patron saint, St. Generius, liquefies twice a year and is venerated. It is a city of great spiritual need. This is Naples, the city of Naples in southern Italy. And you could apply London City Mission's strapline to to any situation. London needs Jesus because London needs Jesus. And as we jump, jump into Acts chapters 13 to 19, that is the reason that the Apostle Paul is doing what he's doing. That is the reason he is making these city breaks Because Philippi needs Jesus, because Thessalonica needs Jesus, Athens needs Jesus. Paul is part of God's fledgling mission. God's mission is underway. He is the CEO, he is the mission director, he is the general secretary as they used to be called in the old days. But what does it mean to be on mission with God? For an ordinary Christian... Not for a missionary, not for a pastor, not for a Sunday school leader necessarily, for ordinary Christians like us. What does it mean for us to be on mission with God? Well, our passage this morning is going to help us. Because we'll see that Paul had spent just a short time in Europe's open air museum, Athens. He'd been there in Acts 17. Next stop, Corinth. Verse 1, chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. It would have taken him. 16 hours, according to Google Maps, to walk the short journey from Athens to Corinth. And if he would owned an equivalent Lonely Planet guide to planting churches or missionary travels, what would it have suggested? Find a city? Find a synagogue? Speak to the Jews first? Well, there's no such handbook. There's no guide. There's no definitive plan for church planting or for evangelism. What we've got in our hands... ...is what we need to begin with. And what was Paul to do? For a start, he's on his own. And maybe you feel on your own. Maybe your situation in life just makes you feel isolated... ...when it comes to sharing Jesus with other people. And if you're going to join in God's mission... ...individually, collectively, as a church... ...the first thing we need to see from this passage... ...is that God plans ahead. God plans ahead... And Lonely Planet would have summed up just about how Paul felt in chapter 18, verse 1. He was all alone, and that wasn't part of the plan. Because Silas and Timothy, his co-workers, were still back in Berea. Previous chapter tells us that Paul was waiting to wait for them in Athens, uh, and they were to arrive and meet him there. But they hadn't come yet. And Paul entered this city with his knees knocking, trembling, alone. In fact, he wrote about this years later. He wrote to the church that he established and said in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. That's Paul the Apostle saying that. He's no elite missionary. He doesn't rate his ability to speak about Jesus. He's fearful and weak. And that is us as well, isn't it? Because evangelism is hard. Sharing our faith, talking about Jesus with people that we don't know how they're going to respond is difficult. And we cross a pain line, to use a phrase from Rico Tice, the evangelist. You cross a pain line when you start talking about Jesus. And we share something of the culture shock Paul felt in Corinth, a sort of first century vanity fair A place the book describes, Vanity Fair, where everybody was striving for what was not worth having. And yet even in such a place, God plans ahead. Look at verse 2. Because enter Aquila and Priscilla. No coincidence. God brings Aquila and Priscilla alongside this solitary figure, Paul. Just an ordinary couple with ordinary business interests. But on the other hand... We read about an extraordinary couple. And Paul stumbles across them because they'd been kicked out of Rome, verse 3 tells us, by the Emperor Claudius around AD 50. And they could have gone anywhere. But here they are in Europe, stumbling across Paul so that he can go into business with them. A real partnership, if you like. And they proved to be towers of strength to Paul. Gospel partners. Gospel patrons. People who invest, put their money where their mouth is and want to support and uphold and give longevity to ministry like Paul was about. And Paul would have been nowhere with them. And he was so, he used so much enthusiasm about them that he wrote to the Roman church many years later that this couple risked their lives for me. Such was their commitment. And this is what the Lord does. When you're on mission with him, he gets the right people in the right place the right time, doing the right things. Maybe from a human perspective, you feel a bit like Paul. You know, you leave this church, you're on the mission field, you're there. You don't have to get a visa, you don't have to pack a bag, you don't have to get one of those little postcards that goes on fridges, that has a a face, your, your smile and so on. But you're there on the mission field and you can feel trembling and fearful and afraid. But he plans ahead and provides people to come alongside us. Look around the room this morning. You're not alone. You meet each week to encourage each other. So don't look at your circumstances and think, I don't think God can use me here. Paul was disavowed of that notion in Corinth and so can we be here in, in this part of London. Priscilla and Aquila. Next, look who arrives. T- uh, Timothy and Silas. And they come, but they come late. But you can forgive them for coming late because we know that they had been those who remained in Berea. See, Paul was able to leave. There was a bit of an uprising. Jews came, caused trouble, and Paul's life was threatened and so he leaves. But they stay put. And they could have said, well, let's just forget Paul. Let's just, let's just sort of look out for number one. They could have bailed, but they go looking for Paul and they come bearing the scars of persecution. Look at verse 5. See what the, the effect that they have is on Paul. You could read verse 5 this way. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul became wholly absorbed with the word says here that he devoted himself, but the, the literal sense is that he suddenly was enabled to become absorbed in this work of teaching from the Old Testament. Repairing fewer tents and opening the scriptures more. You see, joining God on his mission is not lonely planet. You're not alone. That's not how God works. He plans ahead so that he would bring people alongside Now, by verse 5, we don't see much in the way of positive results. There's not much gospel fruit. In fact, look at the response to Paul's preaching. Verse 6 When the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibilities. I'm going to the Gentiles. And we can feel that same sense of opposition. In fact, we need to see when we're in those situations, the God who works next door. Not just the God who plans ahead, but the God who works next door, changes plans, adapts. can feel like opportunities for the gospel perhaps are hard to come by and hard to take in the 21st century in Britain. It's a hard mission field. And if you don't believe that this is God's mission what ends up happening is that we lose sight of a, of a really key principle that on the one hand, the gospel will propel people, but on the other hand, it will attract, it is gloriously attractive. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher who, who wrote this. He said, the sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins And it's the same at every city Paul went to. For some, the more they heard about Jesus, the more resistant they became. But for others, the more their hearts were melted. And so those opportunities, they may be next door. They may be right under our noses, if only we would look. Because Paul, notice what he does, verse 7, he leaves the synagogue, he leaves the sort of mission hub, and he goes next door. And this chap, Titus Justus opens his home to Paul. Someone who we know is a Roman citizen, a Gentile, but more importantly, who Luke points out for us, is a worshipper of God. He's someone hugely sympathetic to Paul's cause. And he's barely moved 20 yards, and here is an open door. God is at work next door. I suspect that between verse 6 and 7, Paul's knees were knocking, but here is an open door. Then verse 8, Crispus rocks up. Remember Crispus, he's the synagogue ruler, and no doubt he's got something to say to Paul. As he approaches, he's coming into the room, and he's going to give Paul his marching orders, surely. But no, he doesn't. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. God is at work next door in surprising ways. People of influence, think of them, people like Crispus, Leaders in the community, people of social standing like Titus Justice, Paul himself, from an extremist background, violent background, transformed because the gospel has come and penetrated their lives. I wonder could it be that God is working right next door to you and it just needs a little bit more scratching, a little bit more probing to see? He plans ahead, He gives the right people at the right time, He works next door. And slowly and surely, Christ Church Corinth, as we might call it, is established. It's built to the point where many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized, verse 8. But if you're like me, and the street I live on is not the easiest place to talk about Jesus. There are just issues, social issues. Sometimes we don't want to open our mouths. And I remember hearing many a sermon as a student or a young person Mission Possible or Mission Unstoppable. Yeah, we've heard that message. We know the gospel's going to go out, but what about me? How can I play my part? Well, this one would be titled, if it had a title, Mission Assured. Because finally, in God's mission, he stands above. He stands above and provides wonderful assurance. You see, Paul is a marked man by now. This was the time, if any, to go under the radar to keep your mouth shut and be quiet. Everything around him, everyone around him perhaps was saying, Paul, just go easy, keep quiet, don't stick your neck, put your neck on the line, it's not worth the risk. Why don't you go home? Why don't you move on? And yet, rather from a, a legal summons from the court or a, a mob coming to the door or Christians telling people not to do it, he hears one voice He hears one particular voice. Look at verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to harm, attack or harm you. These are words of great reassurance to each of us. I am with you. I remember when I was at secondary school. And I joined at the age of 14. I'd been in a school where I was in the rugby team because I was tall. I was taller than the headmaster. It was pretty easy. And then I went to this older senior school. And uh, it was a different proposition. The kids were massive. The sick formers were a strange breed who looked down on you. And it was, I remember feeling a nervous wreck walking up to this school. But as there was somebody in the building. And I would see them regularly. And I'd look around, catch their eye. They'd catch mine. They'd give me a wave or they'd... They come and ask if, how I was doing. And that person was my older brother. He was in the sick form. And whenever I saw him, I thought, I'm okay. He's around. He's cool. He's got my back. And yet, similarly, as Christians, we can feel that same sense of intimidation. Perhaps because we feel the minority. Perhaps because we are afraid of our reputation and what people are going to think of us if we, if we nail our colors to the mast. But I think the real reason that we feel like that is because sometimes we forget we have an older brother. An older brother who sits on high, who calls the shots, who is with us, with the name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And this promise to Paul, well, it wasn't a promise for a blanket promise of protection. Paul had been in prison, he knew that there were risks. It wasn't that at all, but it was an assurance that the Lord would be with him throughout. And no doubt, and, and, and in addition to this presence with Paul was the, was the assurance that he had many people, verse 10, in the city. Paul could have questioned that, and he would have had good reason to. What, a city like Corinth, you've got many people. Perhaps the next day he woke up, he rubbed his eyes, and he remembered. Crispus, Titus Justus. Oh, and uh, Crispus's family, and Silas and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla and a whole load of others who'd been baptised. It wasn't mission accomplished, but it is and it was mission assured. God has many people in Corinth. He has many people in our community, in our cities. We might not see them, perhaps we won't see them come and be gathered for years, perhaps, But he is the God who gathers. And he will do that from whether it is Tanzania, Argentina, Naples, Blackheath. Now if I was was recording this episode, I probably would have stopped at verse 11. And then the sermon could have wrapped up on the note of, so Paul stayed for a year and a half, he's planted a new church, and he teaches them the word of the God. Wouldn't that have been good? A good place to stop and we move on. But Luke includes this strange little episode at the end to drive home the point that God doesn't just plan ahead or work next door, but he stands above and presides over his mission, and that he really does do that for his beloved church. Because 18 months on, Christ church Corinth is growing. But as we read, there's a new sheriff in town, Gallio, was the proconsul of Achaia 18 months later. And the Jews are thinking, now's the time, let's get him, let's use this new proconsul to to bring litigation or whatever it was to Paul and uh, and try him and get him to stop spreading this message. So they phone up the proconsul, they demand a tribunal, everybody's summoned and everybody's nervous, nervous because the last time a Christian figure stood, or a figure from Christian history stood before a proconsul was Jesus himself in front of Pilate. And by verse 13, it's not looking good for Paul. And he goes to speak. He's had a dream. He remembers that 18 months ago. Do not be afraid. Do not stop speaking. Keep on speaking. So he goes to open his mouth. And what happens? He's interrupted by this proconsul, Gallio. Just as Paul was about to speak, verse 14, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint, it would have been reasonable for me to listen. But since it involves questions about words and names, sort of rumors, then settle it yourselves. You see what's happened. God directs the heart so that his indifference, Gallio's indifference to the issue, is, a very, is the very means for the church to keep growing. We have this figure, this chap at the end, Sosthenes, and we, I feel sorry for him. So everybody turns on him. Maybe he hadn't carried out the plan properly. Maybe he didn't. Um, uh, maybe he'd made too many concessions to the to, to the proconsul, and was he was just a, he'd let Paul off the hook. But he gets a broken nose. He gets cracked ribs. He's beaten, and we think, what is that about? Until we think, hang on. When Paul writes to this church many years later. We know that Sosthenes' story doesn't end with a broken nose. Nothing, nothing at all. Let me just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Here is another leader of the Jewish synagogue who seems to become a Christian and is involved in establishing, growing Christchurch Corinth. What an encouragement, isn't it, that in God's mission, our fears, our opponents don't have the last word. And we can take heart because we know God is with us. We know that whilst we won't necessarily have a dream and receive this direct word from the Lord, we can see the way he works and he wants to give you that assurance with whatever Monday morning brings you. Who are those who shout the loudest, who make you feel the smallest? At school, in your neighborhood, within the work environment. Don't take your eyes off Emmanuel. God with us. This is God's mission and his word is the last word. The mission of the church, not the mission of Crosslinks, the mission of the church belongs to God. He plans ahead and opens the opportunities which we go through. He works next door. And will be and and will assure the results. Not us, but him. And he will stand above and work all things to bring glory to his name and his name alone. Let's bow our heads and pray as we finish. Our Father, we thank you that you give this assurance to your people today. That you work in this way. That you build your church. That you withstand opposition and. The gospel is enabled to go out. It is not chained up. It is not bound. I pray, Lord, for St. John's Blackheath. I pray that church families across the times that they meet on a Sunday and those who haven't been able to make it today would stand together and stand together to proclaim Christ as they partner in this mission that is your mission. May that be for your glory's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.